Today we're going to continue the sermon series on the book of Galatians. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 12 to 20. Let's go to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not score or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may you use this word to encourage us. Our goal is to see Christ Jesus formed in us as individuals and also in the church as members of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, let us first recap what we have learned from the previous chapters. Since the middle of chapter 2, Paul applied intense theological concepts to defend the biblical truth, justification by faith, not by works. In his engagement in theological arguments, Paul has employed the Old Testament expansively to show how the gospel that he preached to the Galatian churches was the truth. For instance, he demonstrated the cursing nature of the law in terms of justifying a person from the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He also cited from Genesis 15, the story of Abraham's conversion and justification by faith to back up his argument. In chapter four, he has also employed the Exodus narrative to characterize the nature of the freedom that the gospel of Christ Jesus brings. By far, Paul's argument could be summarized in the following way. Israel was imprisoned by the law, enslaved to it and under its curse. Likewise, the Gentiles were imprisoned under false teaching and vain philosophy. Both Jews and Gentiles were imprisoned by the elementary principles of the world, yet Jesus Christ came and delivered both from the curse of the law, so that they might enjoy the freedom of life in the Spirit. God freed them, not by the works of obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus Christ. Salvation and justification were by faith, not by works. And that's what we have learned so far. 
In today's scripture, Paul takes a brief respite from the theological argument and personally engages the Galatians. He draws attention to his own conduct among them. We also find some very, very personal statements by the Apostle Paul that give us some insights into his own struggles. In the end, however, Paul's personal references accumulate not in an exaltation of himself, but rather the self-sacrificing character of his ministry. What was the goal of his ministry? It was to see Jesus Christ formed in the Galatian churches, the Galatian Christians. And that is the same goal for today, for you and me, to see Jesus Christ formed in our lives. Indeed, it is this goal Christ formed in his people should be the desire and goal of every minister of the gospel. And by the way, besides what we just said, there is another theme for today's sermon that is the relationship between the congregation and the pastor. And I will explain that later. So let's first go to verse 12. The first point, become as Paul. Paul exhorts the Galatians to imitate him. Please look at verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Here's a question. Is Paul saying that the Galatians should imitate his ability, personality, or character? If yes, would it make Paul sound boastful and prideful? which would be the opposite of what he teaches. The overall context provides us with the correct interpretation of what he implies here. He entreats the Galatians to become as he is in the relationship and understanding with the Old Testament law. It is not about his personality. It is not about his character. It is about his understanding and his relationship, the way how he takes between the Old Testament law and his justification. That's what he's talking about here. In other words, Paul encourages the Galatians to hold fast to the truth in justification by faith, having faith in Jesus Christ, not to be justified by work in the law. And that's what he wants everybody to imitate. In order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul became as a Gentile, he was willing to sit at the same table, eat with them, and consume their food, which would be a big problem for a Jew who observed the dietary law. Earlier, if you remember, we read from the previous chapters, Paul rebukes Peter to his face because Peter refuses to sit down with the Gentiles and eat with them. Paul reproves him for not being a positive testimony and the biblical representative of the freedom in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means here by saying, I also have become as you are. Because you're Gentiles, I'm a Jew. But for the sake of getting you to know Jesus, I'm willing to adapt into what you feel comfortable. I sacrificed myself to become you so that you would be converted. Unlike what Peter did, Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Instead, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to become you. So the chance 
of your conversion might be increased. Peter elsewhere addressed his willingness to adapt to whatever context he found himself in, whether among Jews or Gentiles. For though I am free from all, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 20, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not be myself under the law, that I, I might win those under the law. So basically, Paul is trying to say, Jesus Christ is the most superior over all cultural things. For the sake of getting you to know Jesus Christ, I'm willing to give up all cultural things to increase the chance of winning your soul back to Jesus. Regarding the relationship to the law, Paul urges the Galatians to imitate who he is as a transformed man. Before he encountered Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul was zealous for the traditions of the law. In contrast, the new Paul, the new version of Paul, is already dead to the law. He stopped to be a zealot, to be passionate for the traditions of the fathers. That's what he said. And began to live as one outside the law, inside Jesus. You see the difference? For the sake of bringing Gentiles to the saving message in Jesus Christ, he decided to stop passionate for the traditions because he knew there is one thing that is superior to what he used to believe. That's Jesus Christ. That's why he says here in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Just try to be like me. I gave up all the Judaisms that I was passionate for. And you are actually walking towards that direction. But friends, stop doing that. There is no hope down that road. Be like me. I was one of you to preserve the traditions of my fathers, but now I see that was wrong. In Jesus, there's hope. In Jesus, there's life. So that's why he says, become as I am. So let's put together the mutual imitation in this verse. Paul means to say that he was willing to adapt the external things to the expectations of the people around him so that they could focus on the gospel rather than a perceived offense. By being mindfully flexible and adaptable in different contexts, Paul allowed the gospel to stand out. He was trying to remove all the possible obstacles just to stress on the gospel, to remove all the difficulties, that, that's going to be a stop to the message of the gospel so people can focus on Jesus Christ. That's why he encourages the Galatians to leave behind the bondage of the law and to become as he was, the one who was freed by Jesus and in Jesus. In the second half of verse 12, Paul writes to the Galatians, you did me no wrong. You did me no wrong. Which could be better translated as, you have not hurt me at all. 
Let me say this again. It could be better translated as, you have not hurt me at all. Paul intends to remove the tension, if there were any tension, between the Galatians and him, and close the gap that might have rendered by his former reproof. Does that make sense to you? Because Paul was pointing out their mistakes, their false beliefs. So there might be some tension created by doing that. And Paul, right now, he's saying, you did me no wrong to decrease the tension and close the gap. Theologian John Calvin comments, he says, Paul, therefore, meets the rising prejudice by saying, so far as respects myself, I have no cause to complain of you. It is not on my own account, nor from any hostility to you that I feel warmly. And therefore, if I use strong language, it must arise from some other cause than hatred or anger. That's to say, if there must be a cause, must be a reason for his strong reproof to the Galatians, it must be the intense love the fatherly love in Jesus Christ that Paul has for God's people. It is not because he was angry. It's not because he hated the Galatians. It was because of love. He has this strong fatherly love towards God's people, the Galatians, the Galatian churches, and the Christians there. Obviously, Paul is positive about the relationship with the Galatian Christians. However, due to their spiritual immaturity, he might have been concerned that the Galatians would wrongly take his reproving words, not as words of love, but as words of hate. The short phrase here, uh, you didn't hurt me, which contains an implicit plea for a good relationship between a minister and the congregation to continue. That's why at the beginning, I told you, there is a theme of this verse. That's the relationship between the pastor and the church, the congregation. I personally have a very strong and mixed feeling when I was reading Paul's words here. First of all, I definitely can't resonate with how he feels and his efforts to get people back to him. As sinners, we tend to run away from corrective words like this, naturally. Secondly, one of the most sympathetic things that I could ever think of for a gospel minister is that his love towards God's people was distorted and misunderstood or misinterpreted due to the sinfulness of the listeners. I was trying to tell you how much I love you, but in your ears, you misinterpret it as I hate you. That is just so sad, friends. It shouldn't be in this way. So being misunderstood and mistreated, that's the common story to so many gospel ministers because our job is to point out your sin and to point you to Jesus Christ. But by the sinful nature of humanity, we just don't like it. We don't like it. We run away from it. And the minister has to be this person who seeks to stitch the wound as if he has some superpower or donors in dealing with his own hurting feelings. Does that make sense to you? 
which means I'm just like you. When I'm trying to show you love, you misunderstood me. You took it as I hate you. I got hurt by that. However, because I am a gospel minister, I have to stand up again and come to you and seek reconciliation by telling you, you didn't hurt me. I'm fine. Friends, this is not something easy. It's not easy. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul said, Galatians, you didn't hurt me. Let's be real. The Galatians listened to the Judaizers, the false teachers. Is that hurtful? Of course. Paul spent so much time, so much energy, preaching, teaching God's word, the truthful message, the saving message in Jesus Christ. But those people who were about to convert to Christianity, they appeared to be more attracted by the false teachings from the Judaizers. Of course, that's hurtful. That's why Paul said, I'm going to point out your sin. You're doing something wrong. And people tend to run away from him. And now Paul says, oh, you didn't hurt me. Why he had to say this? It is because he wants to bring people back to Jesus. Friends, we're not Superman. We're just like you. We have feelings. If we got hurt, we got hurt. But at the same time, what would be the difference? The difference is that we, as the gospel ministers, we know what we are called by the Lord to do. We know our responsibility. That's why we must be the person to stitch the wood. We have to come to you and bring you back by telling you, oh, you didn't hurt me. By saying this, we're asking for a healthy, good relationship to continue. That's the foundation for your life to grow. Does that make sense? This is not anything easy, friends. You see, being a pastor, being the minister of the gospel, you have to have a very strong heart. Very strong heart. If the minister is responsible to God's people, let me ask you this, friends. What would be some of the responsibilities for you as God's people to the minister? We have a mutual responsibility. The relationship comes both ways. If I am responsible to you, what would be some of the responsibilities you have to me? Where is the balance of the mutual responsibility between the pastor and the congregation? This is a very good question for you to consider. Okay, we're going to continue talking about this. Hopefully, today's scripture is going to provide us some insights and some answer to that. Let's move on. Paul continues in a very personal way in verse 13. He says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not score or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So, 
This is a story. Paul remembers the kindness of the Galatians when he first came and preached the gospel with certain physical illness. When he first arrived at Galatia, he had something going on. It is unclear from what kind of medical condition that Paul suffered. However, according to verse 15, where Paul says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, he probably has some sort of eye illness. Moreover, according to verse 14, Paul's bodily ailment could have attempted the Galatians to find his presence offensive or despicable. However, he says, you, the Galatians, did not score or despise me, but instead treated me as I were an angel or even Jesus Christ himself. So he's saying, you were so kind to me. When I was there, when I first arrived in Galatia, you were so kind to me. Even with this medical condition, that was offensive to you. But you didn't despise me. You were so kind. The description here depicts a picture of a loving and genuine friendship between Paul and the Galatians when he first arrived to preach the gospel in Galatia. However, friends, however, it seems that things have been changed ever since the gospel message was preached there. Before he was preaching the gospel, everything was fine. But ever since he started talking about Jesus, the relationship started to spiral down, start to change. Paul wonders why the Galatians would turn against him now, if indeed they had a loving and kind relationship before. He asks this in verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's the question. Needless to say that Paul was heartbroken due to the relational alteration between the Galatians and him. Something is no longer the same. The Galatians, who used to be kind and loving to Paul, no longer see him as a friend, but an enemy. What did Paul do to bring such a mental and emotional suffering to himself? What did he do? Just because he preached the gospel truthfully? Just because he was not a people pleaser, he told the truth? Just because he attempted to bring the Galatians back to the biblical way of life? and out of the lines of the Judaizers with reproving tone and words? Just because of that? The problem is not Paul rebuked, confronted, and corrected the Galatians with the gospel truth. Friends, what is the problem? The problem is sinners do not love the truth, and sinners do not want to be corrected. That's the problem. The resistance of sin became the resistance against the men. Because I don't like it, but you are the person who's telling me I'm wrong. So I don't like you. I don't like you anymore. I see you as an enemy. But in Paul's heart, 
He was not doing anything hateful. No, not at all. It's the opposite. He was trying to be loving by pointing the Galatians to Jesus Christ. That's the greatest love ever. That's the love, the best love a person can ever offer to somebody else. The Galatians could not comprehend that everything Paul said and did for them was out of love of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a purified love by the blood of Jesus Christ that only those who are also cleansed by his blood could understand. If you're not cleansed by the blood of Jesus, of course you're not going to get it. The Galatians were acting like a 12-year-old child who is immature, rebellious, and counteracting to the loving father. This reminds me so much of Jesus Christ, who preached the heavenly truth, and because of that, he was hated by his own people and crucified by those who he intended to save. I can never forget this phrase that I read from a book a long time ago. It says, if Jesus preached the gospel people wanted to hear, he would not have been crucified on the cross. Indeed, if Jesus were a people pleaser who preached the message that brings great satisfaction to the sinful desires of the sinners, he would have been treated with a great honor other than being insulted and tortured to death on the cross. Similarly, friends, if Paul were seeking to please the Gentile believers in Galatia by preaching the false gospel, he would not have been hated by the Galatians. It is the same thing, friends. If I, as your pastor, never confront you, never correct you by pointing you to God's word, guess what? My stress level would be much lower. My life would be much easier. I can sleep much better at night. And I could be happier because fewer people would hate me for that I loved them in a way beyond their comprehension. Friends, I'm giving you my heart. The reason that I confront you is because I love you, not because I hate you. There is no reason for me to hate you, but there's tons of reason for me to love you. And one of it is because Jesus Christ loves you and died for you. Again, let me ask you this question. Where can we find the balance of mutual love and honor in this pastor-congregation relationship? How can we understand that your pastor? How can me as your pastor to support you, love you, and help you to understand what I'm doing in the biblical way? Where do we find the balance? Paul gets very personal here in the last verses from 17 to 20. His care and love for the Galatians have not changed, even though the Galatians mistreated as an enemy only because he truthfully preached the gospel to them. In contrast, the false teachers, namely the Judaizers in this context, were preaching the false gospel, which only appeared to be more attractive to the Galatians. 
In verse 17, Paul says, The false gospel teachers make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul explains that the false teachers were taking advantage of the Galatians. They were filled with false praise for them. Additionally, Paul explains that they shut you out. What does that mean? That means they wanted to isolate the Galatians from all other influences, especially the apostle himself. Again, what was the purpose of isolating them? It was so that the Galatians would look exclusively to the false teachers, and thus the false teachers could keep the Galatian churches under their bad, negative influence. If someone is telling you, don't go to church, don't listen to your pastor, it is the same thing, friends. He is trying to isolate you from the positive biblical influence. And what should you do? Of course, you don't want to listen to that. Okay? I'm not asking you to fight in a bad way, in a bad manner. I'm asking you to know God's word is superior to those false commands from men. One of the isolations is the alienated and unhealthy relationship between the pastor and the congregation. That's one of the ways that the devil tear us apart to create the tension between the congregation and the pastor. You have to understand this, friends. This is a very common strategy of the devil. And theologian John Calvin comments this, by producing in the people a dislike of their pastor, the false gospel teachers hope afterwards to draw God's people to themselves and having disposed of the rival to obtain quiet position. This explains why Paul must defend himself at the beginning of the book. Rather to say that Paul defends not for himself, but for the gospel, because he knows unless the dislikes against him are removed, the gospel message that he preaches would not be heard. So friends, you see the danger if you, as a member of the church, if you dislike your pastor, if you spread the negative comments against your pastor, what you're doing, you're harming yourself. Not just yourself, you're also harming others. You're stopping others to receive the biblical message, the life-saving message from your pastor. Your pastor is the worker for God. Don't you understand this, friends? It's a servant called by the Lord to speak for his truth. So that's why you want to respect and honor your pastor. Of course, when your pastor is making mistakes, I'm not saying that you should continue to honor and respect. You should respect, but you should also point that out. Pastor, I don't think this is right. Pastor, this is wrong. And give me the biblical evidence to back you up. This will be a good spiritual conversation, right? This is what the sin does to you, friends. This is a common strategy, a evil strategy that the Satan does all the time. 
that's producing the tension between you and your pastor, so you would be shut down for the life-saving news in what your pastor preaches. By doing so, you would be separated from your Savior, Jesus Christ. And to be kept by the master of sin, Satan, as a slave. Are you wise enough to see this picture? Are you wise enough to see this clearly? Do you know what the Satan is doing? Examine your heart. Do you have any negative, whatever that is, against your pastor? For no reason. Just because your pastor told you something which is different from what you believe? So you keep that in you? and you stop other people from getting to know the truth preached by your pastor, friends, don't be enslaved by Satan. This is dangerous. We gotta be wise. We have to see this clearly, see this whole picture clearly. Paul goes on to write in verses 18 to 19. He says, it was always good to be made much of you for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, take a note on this, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It is one thing for a teacher or preacher to put his congregation front and center if for a good purpose, such as praising the work of God in them. Paul has done this in his ministry. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul knew this was not the case with the false teachers. The Judaizers did not have the glory of God or the edification of the church in mind. They only had their own selfish interests at heart. They were doing all of the things for themselves, not for you. They were just trying to earn whatever, satisfy whatever ambition they have. They're looking for their own benefits, not for your benefit. Paul calls the Galatians as his little children. Friends, little children. This is a very beautiful phrase. This is a window into Paul's loving heart towards the Gentile believers. He was deeply concerned for the Galatians. He is like a concerned parent who sees his child in imminent danger. His passion is driven by love and concern for the people, not simply a detached veneration of doctrinal orthodoxy. This is the source of his agitation, but it is ultimately evidence of Paul's great concern and love for the Galatians. Just like I said before, why Paul is using strong, reproving tongue and words? It's because he loves the Galatians so much, just like a father loves his son, loves his daughter, and that's it. So that became a good evidence of his heart by calling the Galatians, my little children, friends. You get to see his heart. It's not a heart of hate. It is a heart of love. It's Jesus' love. I don't know how many of you might be seeing me in the same way. For those who see me in the same way, those who consider me as an angry, pushy pastor who is not loving and kind to you, friends, it's not true. I'm telling you, it's not true. God knows my heart, and you should know that too. 
I'm not afraid to tell you, you have some misunderstandings towards me. The reason that I push you to the truth is because I love you. The reason that I'm pointing you to Jesus is because I love you. The reason that I want to correct you by using God's word it is because I love you. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. So if you have some misunderstandings towards me, if you doubt about my love, my loving and kind heart towards you, I hope God will speak to your hearts and deepen your understanding of my love to you through today's text. Indeed, Paul's love is evident not only because he calls them his little children, but also because he was in the anguish of childbirth to see Christ formed in them. He says in the second half of verse 19, please look at the second half of verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see his motivation, why I am helping you, why I am confronting you. It is because I want to see Jesus Christ formed in you. Unlike the Judaizers, the false teachers, they don't care about you. They only care about themselves, how much money they can make, what kind of benefit they can get. They can get the most out of you. That's it. They don't care about you. They don't care about your eternity. They don't care about your relationship with men and with God. They don't care. But Paul cares about you because he has a genuine heart. He cares about how you understand Jesus. Do you have a personal relationship that would be healthy and biblical with your Savior, Jesus? And that's why he calls you his little children. He wants to see Jesus Christ formed in you. And I'm telling you, friends, I want to see the same thing. We are a baby church. We're young. But that does not mean that I should decrease the requirement, the spiritual expectation towards you. I'm not going to do that. I always expect you to grow in Jesus. Always, always. And you should. You should grow in knowledge and in faith, in your testimony. You should always grow because that's not a requirement from me. That's called sanctification. That's actually a requirement from God. God wants you to be sanctified, to grow into a greater maturity. And I'm just a tool. I'm an instrument in God's hand to achieve that goal. It's for your benefit, it's not for me. Friends, when I'm confronting you, I'm telling you something that you don't want to hear. When I'm telling you something is different from what you believe, hey, let's go to the Bible. If God says that, you got to listen. It's not from me, it's from God. In the last verse, Paul expresses more of his affections and frustrations for the Galatians. In verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. And I am perplexed about you. So Paul might be softening a bit of his tone in person. However, he would never compromise the gospel truth. And friends, that's all for the text today. What can we learn from today's text? I think today's text is very personal. A lot of it revolves around the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. 
let me make this clear. We are not enemies. We are not enemies. We are not enemies. When I'm saying things that you don't want to hear, when I'm trying to correct you by God's word, that does not mean that I hate you. That means the opposite. I love you. And we also have the mutual responsibility. From Paul's example, here's some responsibilities that a gospel minister has to God's people. That's the responsibilities I have towards you. First, a true pastor must strive to transmit Jesus Christ to God's people faithfully and truthfully. Our church's constitution, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Directory of Public Worship has these words to instruct the preachers. Listen to this carefully because it's very beautiful. It's well said. The servant of Christ, whatever his method be, is to perform his whole ministry faithfully, looking at the honor of Christ, the conversion, edification, and salvation of the people, not at his own gain or glory. Keeping nothing back which may promote those holy ends, giving to everyone his own portion, and bearing indifferent respect unto all, without neglecting the meanest or sparing the greatest in their sense. I love this. This is beautiful. This is all about God. This is all about Jesus Christ. This is not about me as your pastor. If I were a true pastor, a true minister of the gospel, the first thing that I want to do is to tell you Jesus. That's why every time you come to the church, every Sunday or during the weekdays, our Bible study and this and that, you must hear Jesus. I barely talk about myself. Sometimes I use myself as an illustration, but I never preach my own thoughts to you. I never ask you to worship me, but I ask you to worship Jesus Christ. You have to know the truth, the life-saving truth in Jesus. And that's what I do. And that's what a true minister of the gospel must do. Secondly, a true pastor must strive to form Jesus Christ in God's people through faithful preaching and teaching. The false gospel teachers seek their own benefit rather than the benefit of the church. But the true gospel teacher seeks to form Christ in the congregants' lives. Which means, I want to see you grow, friends. I want to see you grow because I know if you don't grow in Jesus Christ, what does that mean to your life? That means hopelessness. That means you are living a worldly life which does not provide you the life-saving hope. And that's not what God wants for you. That's the second thing. I want to see, I want to try all the ways that I can to form Jesus Christ in you, to help you to grow into a greater spiritual maturity. Number three, a true pastor must serve with love and discipline with the truth. Love and truth come together. Forgiveness and discipline come together. 
Don't always ask for one thing that you are in favor of. That's God's grace, forgiveness. But you don't like to be disciplined. I understand that. I don't like it either. But that's a package. It cannot be separated. Many pastors may pray and preach, but they won't personally confront the sin they see in the members of their church. They turned a blind eye to the unbiblical conduct to please people. Because, the, because this pastor doesn't want to offend you. So when you are committing certain sins, which is unbiblical, he just chose to close his eyes. For me, that's not a real pastor. That's not a real pastor. The Bible refreshes our understandings of God's love. It is the perfect balance of grace and truth. Forgiveness and righteousness. You must come together. If we learn anything from Galatians, it is that Paul's love for the Galatians was not at all contrary to his willingness to confront them with their sin. Paul says, you're wrong. How foolish you are. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh. But does that mean that Paul doesn't love them? No, it's the opposite. The discipline and the love are not two separate things. It's one thing that's the two sides of one coin. You got to take it all. You got to take it all because that's the very two natures of God. What about the congregation's responsibility to the pastor? Friends, let me remind you again. A great congregation makes a great pastor. Me as your pastor, how great I am, how strong my leadership could be, it is in your hand. According to today's text, there are at least two responsibilities that should stand out for you as members of this church. First, the congregation must be loving and kind to its pastor. While Paul suffered from his eye illness, the Galatians received him warmly, and Paul said that they would have even given their own eyes if they were possible to him. The conduct gives us the idea of how a congregation should treat its pastor. For too many congregations, too many churches expected their pastors to sacrifice and this and that and this and that. His time, his money, his resources, but they are not willing to sacrifice the same for him. That's wrong. The very nature of sacrifice tells us that it is costly and even painful. Such is the conduct that marked the Galatians towards Paul, and such is the conduct that should mark any church that is redeemed by Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If this is a real church of Jesus Christ, if this is authentic church of Jesus, we should show this mutual love towards one another. We are not enemies, friends. We're not. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. And we support each other. We love each other. We have different roles. Sometimes you will be criticized by me. You'll be pointed out the things that you're committing, which is wrong, sinful, unbiblical. But that does not mean that I'm your enemy. I'm not. You're not my enemy too. We're family. Do you understand that? We're family. 
That's the first responsibility you guys have towards me as your pastor. Secondly, the congregation must recognize this pastor for what he is, a conduit for Christ. I'm just an instrument in God's hand. And in this way, receive my teaching and preaching as they would the words of Jesus Christ. This does not mean that you should come and worship me. No, don't worship me. Worship Jesus. It only means to honor the teachings and the preaching of the pastor as if Jesus Christ is speaking to you through your pastor. As if Jesus Christ is speaking to you right now. The second Helvetic Confession, which was written in the year of 1566, states this. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is preached and received by the faithful. So when I'm telling you something that is different from what you like to hear, listen to me and take it as the word from the Lord as if Jesus Christ is speaking to you. That's what I'm asking you to recognize the power and the authority of God's word. It is not my power, not my authority. My power and my authority comes from the power and authority of God's word. So friends, we find there is a mutual edifying and loving relationship and responsibility between the pastor and his congregation. It is a relationship that is founded in Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you this, friends. Let us surrender and come together, come together, to form Jesus Christ, not only in our lives as individuals, but also in the body of Christ as members of his church. I'd like to take this opportunity to make my confession to you. If you didn't really know how much I love you, I'm going to tell you, friends, no matter who you are, I love you in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for the life-giving and powerful, authoritative words. Father, may you use these words to build up our life, build up your healthy, good relationship between the minister and the congregation. In you, we're one. We're family. We support each other. A great congregation makes a great pastor. This is a great congregation, but we can still grow. Father, help us to grow into a greater maturity and make us a great congregation that could testify your truth. Help each one of us to form Jesus Christ in our individual lives, but also in this church as members of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.